You're listening to Discriminology, the podcast that aims to dismantle discrimination one discussion at a time. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios with your host Malik Silau, Steve Kramer, and Sydney Penn. Welcome back to another episode of Discriminology. I'm your host for today, Malik Sila, and I'm joined by Sydney Penn. Recently, we read a book called Raising LGBTQ Allies by Chris Tompkins. One of the major concepts that stood out to us was the analogy of a universal playground that we have all experienced. The playground is is a symbolic metaphor for our minds, and the messages we receive reflect dominant societal worldviews. As children, we absorb conscious or unconscious messages that ultimately shape our beliefs and perspectives about the society in which we live. Many adults experience apprehension and discomfort introducing complex concepts like heteronormativity, homophobia, transphobia, etc. to young children. What we often fail to realize is that children are introduced to these concepts whether we discuss them explicitly or if we choose to remain silent about them. We've discussed socialization on the podcast before, but Chris's book gives a deep, in-depth explanation as it relates to the LGBTQ plus community in a thoughtful and digestible manner. Today, Chris Tompkins joins us to help us further discuss this topic and his book overall. Sid, do you mind introducing our special guest today? Absolutely. So a little bit about our amazing special guest, Chris Tompkins. He's a teacher, a TEDx speaker, a spiritual life coach, and an LGBTQ inner advocate based in Los Angeles, California. More importantly, he's an uncle of five. Chris believes that all kids are the future, and he teaches social-emotional learning throughout Southern California. Chris, thank you so much for being here with us. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm grateful to be here. And we really appreciated getting a copy of your book. It was it was a very insightful read. Everyone on the staff really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I'm grateful that you that you read it and that you got a lot out of it and that I'm, I'm, that I'm able to be here to talk about it. Is there anything about your career or anything else you'd like to share the listeners before we get started with our questions? Um, gosh, uh, I'm just, it's kind of this book has been a journey of just the culmination of, of my life experience and everything that I've, I've learned along the way and just I'm grateful to be able to talk about and continue to having these con- these conversations. Yeah, I, I can only imagine writing a book. It's, it's something on the bucket list, but I can imagine how stressful that is going through reviews and writing out all the chapters and dealing with publishers. So I'm sure it's a busy, stressful time for you. Yeah, it is. You know, it's interesting because kudos to you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I appreciate that. I think that for me, I don't I don't know if you ever heard this, but um, before, but I remember before even writing a book, I'd always heard of the authors, the people who write the book, write it for themselves. And I always understood that to be the content, like the content of the book they write for themselves. I never understood that to mean the process. Right. And so the process for me was was the most like challenging. Um, and it brought up all these like unhealed parts of myself. Um, so it's very therapeutic in a lot of ways because it brought me to my knees. <laughs> um, like, you know, the, the, the dark night of the soul that, that is often referred to, um, I experienced that for sure through the process of, of the book. Right. It's an expanded version of journalism, I'm, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think for me too, just um, having to go to places that you haven't really even 
gone to before. Um, maybe you've gone there to a certain degree. Um, one of the real things that I, I believe truly, and I write about this in the book, is that we can only take others as far as we've gone ourselves. And so in order to to go to all of the, the parts of the book that I wrote about, I had to go there myself. Um, so that was kind of a culmination of all the things. And at once when you sit sit down to write it, right. it's like, oh, it's coming. Like the process is like, you know, very, very therapeutic. Did you have any like fears or hesitations um, once it was ready to be published, like people reading it? Did you have any like fear about what how people would receive, would receive it? I did, yeah, I had a lot of fears. Um, I think that the, the content of what I write about is very nuanced and and even before COVID-19, I think that the conversation, like if you, if we had this conversation pre-pandemic, it, it could have looked different. And I think that the past few years have just changed so much. Um, and so my manuscript was submitted in February of 2020. So right before the pandemic um, happened, and it was originally supposed to be published in 2020 because of the pandemic, it was published in, you know, 2021. Um, but I did have a lot of fears because I think some of the conversations I have are really are uncomfortable. Um, they're uncomfortable to, to kind of acknowledge, um, you know, because I think in order to really, and this is what I talk to parents a lot about, is that in order for us to understand why we don't have certain conversations, we have to look at the reasons that we don't have them, which are often fear-based. And we have to kind of explore those uncomfortable, you know, areas. Chris, speaking of 2020, the, the summer of 2020 obviously opened up in many ways a Pandora's box, um, not particularly specific to the LGBTQ plus community, but just having uncomfortable socio-political conversations in general. Did sure. that make it easier or harder to work on release and kind of promote the book? Um, I don't know that easier would be like a, a word that I would want to use, like, because I don't think it's like easy per se, but I think that it created a space like there was a there was a deeper opening um, for which to have these conversations. I think that I think that 2020 was a, a year that really opened people's cracked people open um, in ways that they hadn't been before. And so I think that there was a certain um, a deeper willingness to maybe to go to some of those those places and really confront things that we haven't wanted to confront before. For sure, Chris. We'll kind of we'll kind of jump in just to give our listeners context more. So obviously we read the book, so we, we have a little bit more context than our listeners. But yeah. we alluded to yeah. it in, in the intro. Uh, but do you mind providing our listeners with a high level explanation of how the playground functions? in terms of shaping our, our dominant societal beliefs and, and shaping narratives around that? Yeah, yeah. So messages from the playground, that's kind of the one of the through lines that I write about, like the metaphor that I use um, to carry readers through is that you, when I came, I, I didn't come out of the closet until I was around 25 years old. And so after I came out, I immersed myself in LGBTQ advocacy and and I, I, I live in Los Angeles, and that's one of the reasons I moved out to Los Angeles was for um, LGBTQ advocacy work that I was doing. And I still was finding there was like this kind of subtle thing that I wasn't quite able to put my finger on. And I didn't really know what that was. I was doing a lot of great work, and yet there was still a lot of unhappiness that I was feeling within myself. And so I started to think about 
gosh, you know, well, even though I'm gay and I, I came out of the closet, I still played on the same playground as everyone else. And so I still picked up messages from my family. Religion is part of my my background, my experience. And so I still picked up a lot of the messages. And so I started to kind of create this analogy for myself to understand some of the internalized homophobia that I had, but I didn't know what it was. I, you know, you don't really, that's that's kind of a, a, a clinical term that, you know, is often used like in the context of therapy. But, you know, if you don't go to therapy and you're not maybe you know, you're kind of fresh out of the closet and you don't really know. And so for me, it was a way to understand I played on the same playground as everyone else. And then I started to kind of think about, well, gosh, that kind of expands to other things, too. We all kind of no matter who we are, where we come from, there are certain collective societal messages that we pick up consciously and subconsciously. Um, so that's kind of the metaphor that I use. And then, you know, when I started teaching social emotional learning, about six, seven years ago in the classroom with kids who are four generations younger than me. And I'm hearing them kind of use certain words to make fun of other kids or, you know, certain things that they say. I'm like, I, that's what we used when I was a kid. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of the same, you know, the notion of the messages from the playground. And the playground, it's a metaphor to describe is the playground is consciousness, the collective right. consciousness. And the messages are the societal beliefs that we pick up. Can you define social emotional learning for our listeners that may not know what that term is? Yeah. So social emotional learning that, that I teach, um, it, it may look different kind of in different states and different spaces. Um, but social emotional learning is basically learning that helps young people, I guess, old, old people or, you know, any age, but it's learning that allows you to become more in touch with your feelings, your, your, your emotional skills. It gives you a, a, a capacity to understand your feelings as it relates to your experience. So oftentimes when young people go to school, they're just taught, you know, math, science, kind of these like general kind of um, subjects. Whereas social emotional learning allows young people to talk about their emotions or feelings that they're experiencing um, and allows them to connect to themselves and to feel more, um, more equipped to be able to handle the everyday challenges that they may experience, whether it's at school or at home, because a lot of young people they're living lives that, you know, they go to home and they may not have adequate, you know, especially we saw that with COVID-19, you know, like a lot of families didn't have laptops or, right. you know, the capability. And so how do you have conversations around what that, what does that feel like for you? Um, so social emotional learning is a way to kind of have that complement the learning. Um, because one of the things I talk about in the book is that learning is inherently vulnerable. And so if you're not able to be vulnerable and to feel safe, then there's not a lot of learning that's happening. What does teaching social emotional learning, especially for a young child, like what does that kind of look like? Do you kind of like, do you go angle it to be more like anecdotal where you kind of talk about your experience and like life experiences? Do you like, do you implement statistics and stuff? Like how did, what does that kind of look like? teaching to young kids yeah yeah so it looks the curriculum looks 
it, it may look different in different um, with different organizations. And so where I teach, it's each class is an empowerment statement. So the curriculum is is there are three phases and each phase is 10 weeks long and each each week or each class is an empowerment statement. So for instance, I am forgiving, I am me, I am confident. I and so we talk about that particular subject in each class and there are always three components to each because everyone's a different learner and so there's always an experience there's always an experiential exercise that we do with the the students the youth and then there's always journaling some type of written work and then there's always some type of dialogue like kind of um so you get to experience it in your body you get to write it and then you get to talk okay. about it very interesting. So we cover everything from bolt. We cover everything from bullying, um, and and one of the ways that I started teaching is that the curriculum is taught in schools, but it's taught, and we could talk about this maybe with regard to the book, is that it's it's taught. It was taught from a very heteronormative lens. So I so I found that I was having to, depending on what spaces I was going to, I was having to rewrite some of the curriculum to adapt it to the youth that I was working with, which there, you know, a lot of the spaces that I was working with were LGBTQ youth. And so that would be an example of kind of the messages from the playground is that even though we're talking about these social emotional, you know, kind of concepts, we have to do it in a way that doesn't include everyone. Chris, you, you alluded to it before about some of the internalized homophobia that you had to unpack while writing this book and and in general, and one of the biggest concepts, well, let me back up for a second. I really appreciated that. It seemed to me that the book spoke to two audiences. It spoke to obviously potential allies, it's in the titles, but there are, there are a lot of chapters that seem to be written for members of the community to unpack shame and internalize concepts. Go, can you speak to the concept of shame and how it may be exacerbated in the LGBTQ plus community? One of the super poignant portions or quotes, and I'm, I'm sorry if I misquote you, but there were portions in the book that spoke to increased amounts of drug abuse and alcohol abuse. I, I remember specifically you had an exchange with someone at a bar and they referred to, I don't know if it was vodka and, and Red Bull or something to that effect as, as gay water. And that was like a very powerful thing to quote. I was just like, wow, it's just such a normal. Yeah. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate, I appreciate you bringing that up. And I think, and I also appreciate your acknowledgement of it kind of being two audiences, because that's very true is that I wrote this book as much for parents and caregivers and teachers as for the LGBTQ community, because I'm an uncle and it wasn't until I realized the kind of the converse, the question that my nephew asked me that my role as an uncle is so important as a family member, as an LGBTQ family member, because it's really easy for me to live my life in Los Angeles. But what does that look like? And what messages am I perpetuating? Messages from the playground. And just to give our listeners context, your nephew asked if you had a girlfriend at the time. I just want to make sure. I, okay. Yes. I just, want to, I just want to make sure our listeners yeah. understood that. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. So for the listeners, um, just to the, for them to understand. I was at a family function, a lot of family members that were there and a girl that I was sitting next to, my childhood friend, my nephew asked, 
kind of in front of everyone, his version of whispering, which I say is talking out loud. And, you know, like kids do, they just have the thought and they ask the question. And so I, I just remember it was a very poignant, you, mentioned, you said poignant, it was a very poignant moment in my life because I realized like, oh, that's an example of, of the nuances of, it's not just about homophobia or transphobia, it's about heteronormativity. And so we have to really kind of explore what that looks like as, as far as our kids and, and how we view them. Um, so then kind of jumping to the, your question about internalized homophobia is that, you know, that that's such a an important concept. I think that our community, the LGBTQ community, in my from my perspective, could benefit from talking about more um, internalized homophobia, internalized transphobia. It's it's basically because I think there are a lot of misconceptions around it. And when I say that, it almost kind of sounds like it's it's my fault. Like I have this internalized homophobia. And so it could be very off-putting. And, and, and what I really invite readers to consider and when I have these conversations is that the only reason that internalized homophobia exists is because external homophobia exists. And so that's why we really kind of have to, you know, unpack that to really understand like, to get it out of me and like place it on, like not, you know, place it on society, but really, you know, put it where it's, it, it, you know, it belongs. Um, right. So yeah, I, I worked at a, I bartended at a gay bar for, I worked there for 11 years and I just kind of really saw the effects of shame and not only shame, but also trauma and unhealed trauma and shame combined with substances is is often a recipe for just, you know, self-harm, um, self-harming behavior. And I think that um, that's what I saw. And so I use that example because I saw instances of that a lot where, you know, that moment where someone asked me for a drink, vodka and Red Bull, and I thought they just said Red Bull. And, and he's like, no, 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 gay water vodka and Red Bull. Right. And it was just like an example of kind of the um, the normalization of alcohol. The individual almost made light of it, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how, because I feel like people um, who aren't in the LGBTQ community, kind of like when we talk about how like internalized homophobia and how there's homophobia within the community, it kind of people kind of like, they're like, what? Like, how could that possibly possibly be? You know, and it's um, you had you had talked about it in your um, TEDx talk uh, when you like spoke about the closet experience as, as a whole and the fact that you know the closet experience, the closet quote unquote exists because of the external um, homophobia and how like people who are LGBTQ plus are, are have, like they have to have this like coming out mo you know moment or experience because of the other and the, the isolation you know the society places on lgbtq plus people um and i chris i don't know if you know my, the listeners know but i'm not sure if you do um i'm also gay and so and i also came out quote like later in life i came out when i was 19. um and i remember like it, even for me because i you know, i didn't grow i was fortunate to grow up in um a community and in a family that was very accepting of LGBTQ people. Um, I, I knew LGBTQ youth growing up, like, it, you know, I had a very, um, in that regard, uh, good experience as far as my sexuality goes. But when I did come out finally at 19, I, I, I definitely 
felt kind of the a little bit of the shame and the fear sort of because it like it sort of felt like um you know I, I had like lied my whole life like that kind of thing and like you know now that I was out and like you know didn't really know where to go next like okay yeah, yep I'm, I'm gay but like what now and and I realized you know as I'm I'm 25 now so in the past six years realizing that um that kind of like shame guilty feeling is because of the internalized you know growing up even though my family was accepting, it, it, it still, it still felt like I had to hide. You know what I mean? And like, it still felt like I had to, like, it, it was still not normal, quote unquote, or it was still other, which caused, you know, placed this hot experience in my own life. And so it was really interesting that you mentioned that how like, you know, the internalized homophobia um, kind of creates all of these things within the community that sort of like snowball into what we see now with this internalized homophobia, which is rampant in our community. So. Right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, because that's a really good, I think, description of how even though you can grow up in an affirming home and have affirming messages that there are these kind of subtle subconscious, I I kind of refer to them as like Mm -hmm. kind of particles in the air or, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like it's like pollen, like you can't really see it, but you start to sneeze and my allergies are kicking up, you (laughs) know, but it's like I didn't see the pollen, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and that's kind of. And, and that's just that's just by virtue of being social. You mentioned socialization. That's just by virtue of being socialized in a dominant kind of heteronormative culture, heterosexist culture. And so I think that that's one of my my desires with the book is to really invite parents and caregivers to consider that children when they're young are, are developing their sexuality and their gender naturally. And so if we can kind of intentionally create spaces and have conversations and just kind of um, make 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 an environment that a child develops naturally, then that can minimize some of the shame and kind of what you described. The 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 because children are they're like sponges; they absorb they just everything. Take everything they, in. Yeah, they take everything in, and and they don't even know that they're taking it in. They're just consuming, consuming, consuming. And so if we can help introduce just like a consciousness shift, then that creates a space with a child for them to be able to show up as they are, not as how they think that we think they they should should be. be. Right. Right. Chris, we do want to ask you about, you know, when and how to have conversations and, and, and broach seemingly difficult topics with children but before we kind of go too far i I did want to kind of go further with the the potential substance abuse because there's a port there's a portion in your book where you uh you pretty much said that there is almost a subconscious seeking of punishment and it can lead to seemingly self-destructive behavior now i can't relate to that as being a member of the lgbtq community but being a black person you know, you, you can kind of relate to that. You see that in certain instances, in certain neighborhoods. And then it, it, it almost seems like you're blamed for the self-destructive behavior when the impetus for the behavior is the oppression. So it, it, that kind of stuck out to me, but I wasn't really sure how to properly articulate that. So can you kind of explain that a little bit further for our listeners? Yeah, yeah. It's a really great point because I appreciated you even mentioning like coping mechanisms and how, you know, it could also be, you know, drinking or substance use could also be a coping mechanism right. from the trauma and the external oppression. And, and that's true. 
And I think that there are healthy coping mechanisms. And so for me, I think that underneath there's a feeling of worth. And I think that that, that feeling of not being worthy or deserving is going to drive some of the behavior. And that's where I think that the substance use and alcohol use comes from. And so I think it's really important because I have a chapter about shame and then I have a chapter about trauma. And I think that the two are so easily connected. And I think that it's helpful to kind of suss out like what's shame and what's trauma and what coping mechanisms am I using right. to um, like to counter the trauma, to numb the trauma or hide from the shame. And I think that when it comes to sexuality and, and gender, and those are, are, are really kind of nuanced. And so there there is, I think, just by virtue of being in the United States, our country is founded on kind of these more conservative values when it comes to sexuality and gender expression, for sure, and gender identity. And mm -hmm. so I think that a lot of, in my experience, in my world, a lot of the behavior is driven from shame that has to do with my experience as a gay man for, for, for me um, and, and how can I have be 100% connected to my sexuality w without the shame, without the need for substances. Sid, I have a question for the both of you. This isn't necessarily on the script, but more so anecdotal. Based on my experience, and I, again, this is anecdotal, it's not a large sample size, but I've noticed that women that come out as gay that present feminine receive a little bit more acceptance than masculine presenting females or gay men. Is is there any validity to that or is that kind of just my experience? I, I, I definitely uh, would say that, that there is some validity, validity to that. And again, that goes back to the heteronormative society that we live in and the way that society has um, defined gender expression, defined physical expression, and how society has decided that a uh, man or a woman should should present themselves in their sexuality and just being, just, you know, how they should dress, how they should look, et cetera. And so um, uh, my girlfriend, for instance, is a quote unquote masculine, more masculine presenting female. You know, she has short hair. Um, she wears, quote unquote, I'm putting all these in quotes because I don't believe that any of them are real, but she wears, quote unquote, men's clothing and things like that. So, and I am, yes, a more feminine presenting uh, woman. So people, so that in itself, you know, the two of us walking down the street, right? People see us and already formulate all of these things about our personalities just based on the way that we look. And it definitely is the case that um, for me, again, I, I was, I'm privileged and fortunate to have had a, um, you know, positive, overall positive coming out experience as far as being accepted. Um, a lot of that is because of the way I grew up, but also a lot of that is because um, I am a feminine presenting woman. And again, society, they romanticize lesbians. And this is just kind of like how society perceives um, and pictures a lesbian to be. And so my girlfriend had a very different experience and she definitely faces more of the, of the, um, of the sort of, 
negative views and in, in that you know she people people think that she is like struggling with her gender identity and how and somehow her wanting to wear certain things she doesn't want to be a woman um you know the way her behaviors are taken differently you know she's if she's more aggressive or seems to be coming off angry it's you know it's it's okay quote unquote because she looks more masculine but if i was to act that way you know all those things it's like it's it all ties into the the gender norms and the way that society has has decided the rules so to speak that um were placed on how people should should act and be and you know it, it definitely causes a struggle and it's and it's all of it is you know social construct and not you know real tangible facts based on real tangible facts so but it definitely um to your point malik is is the case i feel like for a lot of um women you know i can't speak for everyone but i've seen it and i've experienced it so i think that there's definitely some validity to that yeah that, i think that's a really great example and you explained it in a really concise way because a lot of it has to do with the the norms the the quote norms societal norms um i've had this conversation with myself you know with my family and because quote i present more masculine or you know with my my expression as far as my voice and and so that is something that my family i don't know how comfortable they would be if i were more feminine presenting because that bumps up against the construct that they they have internalized themselves and so there 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 is like this this almost disconnect with 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 how they're experiencing me because of the societal construct. It seems that, and it makes sense, it's, it seems that the further you are from normative culture, the less accepted you are. And yes. so in these examples, you, you're both articulating things that are a little bit closer to what is deemed normal or, or acceptable by right. the larger society. Right, right. And that, and that, and, and that's why, I think it's so important to be able to talk about these things because this exists within the gay community, like the gay men, male community. Um, and so this is where I talk, this, this is what I mean by the shame piece right. is that if, if we feel these messages still ourselves, even though we're out and, 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 and living our lives, you know, as gay men, how does that play out to the young people, um, you know, children who maybe aren't, you know, if there's a little boy who's maybe presenting more feminine, um, because the thing of it is, is that, you know, more LGBTQ people are having children. And so just because you're an LGBTQ parent doesn't mean that you don't possess some of these messages yourself. And so, right. so we can, you know, project if a person this this is just in general kind of human behavior is that if i have shame this shame feels really icky and uncomfortable so what do i do i i project it out and so oft so oftentimes children because they're sponges they absorb that and so this is so this conversation and talking about these things very complex very nuanced but it's so helpful is because we can we, we can become more mindful of them so that we can prevent children from having that same kind of experience. There's a whole chapter or a whole segment of your book that that kind of stresses the importance of the power of words, using the right words, speaking correctly. Um, a lot of that is hijacked in today's conversation as being politically correct, but you kind of really go through the nuances of why words matter. 
Um, I'd like you to explain that in more detail. And a specific example that you mentioned in the book, homosexuality is sometimes deemed an offensive term. That was actually new to me. I, I, I learned that as I read the book. Um, so can you can you speak through that as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, thank you. I, I appreciate that because I think that, you know, we do live in a world today where, you know, pre-COVID, I think that conversations and words and, you know, language um, and, and my hope before before this was a, a book, it was a presentation that I, I used to give around Los Angeles. And what I found was that oftentimes when I was giving a presentation, especially with like mental health professionals, they were wanting to be so politically correct that they wouldn't talk about the things that we were really there to talk about. And so I, I, I think it's helpful to be mindful of words for sure. And also to be able to talk about, like you just asked, like, well, why are certain words, you know, uncomfortable to be able to talk about them? Um, homosexuality. So just for your listeners, um, there's a whole history of, of the mental health um, DSM-5, which is the diagnostical. OK, so it's the book that basically mental health professionals use to diagnose someone. So if you go to a therapist and you're seeing them, they'll diagnose you from the DSM with a mental health condition. And so homosexuality was in the DSM-5 as a disorder, a mental health disorder. And most often it's referenced as 19, you know, most people reference the DSM-5 as homosexuality falling out of the DSM in 1973, but it was not until 1984 that it was actually still considered an ego dystonic disorder. So basically, if you went to a therapist and you're talking about your sexuality and these unconscious messages from the playground, the internalized homophobia, then your therapist would view that as a disorder, like or as a condition that could be diagnosed. So, and, and in history terms that it, we, we talk about history a lot, that is equivalent to it changing yesterday. That is not a long time. Yeah, totally. Not a long, not a long time at all. Not a long time at all. And so, and further is that that's when gender dysphoria was entered into the DSM-5. So there's kind of some, it's, it's a little bit more complicated because it was like homosexuality fell out. And by the way, the vote was within, the vote was 10,000 psychiatrists and 5,000 of them voted to have it removed and almost 4,000 of them voted to keep it. So I, I, I share that because it's not like we just flip a switch and then all of a sudden it comes out of the DSM-5. I think it's important because it, it, it speaks to kind of the nuances of how these things influence our culture and how, especially with regard to religion and how kind of there are certain things in the collective consciousness, the, the messages from the playground that influence how we show up and how we feel about ourselves and how other people feel about about us no totally chris thanks for uh touching on the the dsm that's that was something i wanted to ask you about remaining on the topic of the proper vernaculum um your book also touches on the fact that homophobic and transphobic is sometimes a little bit misleading nomenclature because it's not necessarily a phobia per se uh can you expand upon that yeah, yeah. So going back to the DSM-5, I mean, a phobia, like if I have a DSM-5, if I pull it out, like there would, there's a whole 
diagnosis of, phob of phobia. And in order for you to be diagnosed with a phobia, you have to meet certain criteria. Like you have to fit all of these specific things. And so someone who's homophobic by the DSM-5 standards wouldn't meet the criteria. <laughs> so it's not a phobia. And so when I say to someone, for instance, my family, as an example, when my nephew asked me if, if the girl sitting next to me was my girlfriend, and then I started having conversations with them about, well, have you talked to your kids? Like, do they know that I'm gay? Like, have you had those conversations? If I were to say, oh my gosh, you haven't, you're homophobic. They, they would say, what? We're not homophobic. We love you. We support you. And so that's why I think sometimes it can almost like stop the conversation because it's it's more than homophobia, it's more than transphobia, it's it's heteronormativity, it's it's the messages from the playground. And and so that's how we kind of have to like parse it out and and not just it's not just about homophobia. Um that's like the extreme end of it, but there's it's a it's a range, I'm assuming, correct? It's a range and, 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 and even parents who are really loving and supportive, they, they don't want to consider themselves homophobic because they're good people and they love their children. Right. And, 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 and it's important that we be able to, that we can name heteronormativity and it, it doesn't mean that you're a bad parent. It doesn't mean that you're quote homophobic and that you want to intentionally cause someone harm. It's that we live in a society that is homophobic. We'll be right back. Beep, beep, beep. We are interrupting this show to tell you about our podcast with a very special announcement. Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying your podcast which you're listening to right now. But I would like to tell you about another one. We are Sounds Like Autism. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios, which is full of impactful programming. It's the podcast that celebrates neurodiversity by speaking to the people who are helping to create a more inclusive world. I am Dave Thompson. I am an educator and an innovator and a leader within the space of helping the world become a more inclusive place for neurodivergent people as a neurodivergent self-advocate myself. And my co-host, Josh Mursky, is an incredible, hardworking, big-picture dude who is on the autism spectrum and super stoked to spread his message of inclusion along with me. We've had folks on from all over, all walks of life, all over the country, and more. You don't need to be someone who is autistic yourself or have skin in the game. You don't need a family member or a neighbor who is autistic. You probably have one, but you don't need any of that to get stoked on neurodiversity and inclusion. We're confident that if you give us a shot, if you join us on our journey, that you'll be a lifer and you'll be fully invested in this mission. We are just so delighted and honored to have this kind of platform to share with you all what we do do check us out i hope you enjoy your current podcast and then after that skedaddle and come right over here to sounds like autism and check us out now back to the show you're listening to discriminology with your hosts malik Silal, steve kramer and sydney pin it's it's almost like it's kind of like you know when you put phobia at the end at the end of the term transphobia homophobia like the 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 Phobia part is such a has such a daunting connotation to it that it's kind of like people when you equate it to racism and how like people 
who don't have a Confederate flag hanging in their yard. You know, they're like, I'm not racist. You know, I have a black, whatever. I have a Hispanic, whatever. But it's it, when that daunting connotation is it, placed on the word, it kind of shuts people's, I, feel, I agree, Chris, shuts people's kind of brain off and stops the conversation because they feel like, well, I'm not out here, you know, yelling slurs at people, you know, at the pride parade, but then you also go home and then you don't talk to your kid about why they, your son wants to wear a dress, perhaps, you know, you kind of just like, you say no and that's it, you know? So it's, I agree with that. hundred percent. It's kind of like what you're, what I hear from your saying, it's almost like privilege. Like, like it's, it's not enough to just say like, oh, like racism. It's like, we have to talk about heteronormativity or privilege and that kind of expands the conversation. I think we can dig into that a little bit more. We, we, we could use Socratic me method. Um, messages from the playground, socialization, based on that theory, and we can all agree to that. Um, well, if you, if you believe that socialization is a thing or you subscribe to that, everyone receives these messages. So if members of the LGBTQ plus community can have internalized messages of, of self-hate and, and all these regards, it's logical to assume that if not every member or individual that's not a part of the community, it's logical to assume that we all have those messages as well. So why is it, do you think, like I'm comfortable saying that I have negative internalized messages about groups that I'm not a part of, whether that be women, whether that be the LGBTQ community, whatever. I, I, like, I understand how socialization works. I'm comfortable articulating that and, and articulating that I have work to do. But that's very hard for people to do for some of the reasons that we kind of alluded to. No one wants to be labeled um, homophobic. No one wants to be labeled racist. So I, I want to ask you, how do we open that up so these conversations can happen without evoking shame from potential allies? Yeah, yeah, that's a really, really great question. I think for me, what comes up is like, I, I intentionally broke my book up into three sections is awareness, willingness, and change. And I think that it starts by having the awareness is, is and then be willing, be willing to see that these are things that, that I've internalized. And it doesn't mean I'm a bad person or I'm a bad, I'm a bad parent. Um, you know, my, my sister, my family loves me. They absolutely love me. And there are things that they unknowingly were doing that were perpetuating the, the heteronormativity and the fear-based thinking about what it means to be, in my case, gay, um, which contributes to their children. And then, you know, I used to, when I, whenever I would go home to Arizona to visit, that's where I'm from, you know, I remember having a conversation with my niece and nephew and I asked them, I'm like, you know, do you have any LGBTQ kids at your school? And they were both this, they were in um, junior high at this time. And they're like, no, I don't think we do. We don't have any. And I'm like, really out of your whole school? You don't have any, any, you don't think there are any LGBTQ kids there? And they're like, no. And I'm like, do you think that there are? And they, that they just haven't told anyone. And they're like, yeah, yeah, probably. And I was like, well, why don't you think that they've told anyone? And so then we were kind of ha able to have a conversation about why would other kids not feel safe to share who they were? And so then, so then I was able to have a conversation with my niece and nephew about the ways that they could be allies at their school. 
just in just in little conversations like you know that they're having with their their friends you know just some of the the more intentional things that we can that we can say that people who are that identity hear and then they feel a little more safer a little a little safer can you give examples of like uh, conversations like what they could say or yeah like what they could say intentionally or what they could do intentionally yeah I, I, I mean going back to kind of the heteronormativity is is you know using certain words like hey guys or um, you know oh, um, do you have a do, do you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend or you know kind of introducing not just a strict um, binary or or make assumptions or you know that kind of thing or or talking about yeah i have a gay uncle or you know introducing certain things in conversations that kids maybe feel like because i mean like i said going back to the the messages from the playground when i teach social emotional learning and i use the word gay most of the kids their reaction is what do you think they get uncomfortable yes of course yes <laughs> yes yeah yes Totally, totally. So it's kind of using words in a way that makes it feel more normal and natural. And it's not as, it's not like a, ooh, you said a word, you know? It's kind of being able to kind of normalize these these things and create spaces where other kids feel included. And I think I think also um, maybe for, I don't, I don't have children, so I can't speak um, for people who, who are parents in that regard, but, um, you know, I, I think maybe for, for older people or people who are parents, um, you, you kind of you talked about it in your uh, TEDx talk, Chris, about how and I really, I really liked it. Sorry. Also, if I like don't say the quote correctly, um, completely correctly. But at the end of your TEDx talk, you, you mentioned um, that it's kind of this idea of accept, acknowledging and accepting that our thoughts aren't all our own, that the way the ways in which we think and the things that we think that's a reason we think those things and not our own thoughts. And I think it's, that's a kind of a, that's a, that's a, that's a concept that people can grasp, grasp when it comes to other topics. But I think it's really difficult for people to grasp that when it comes to um, the LGBTQ community and sexuality because of religion and because of all the other things, you know, in our, in our um, society that we deal with. And so it, it's hard to kind of like wrap their heads around the fact that even your views and your thoughts on sexuality and LGBTQ community, like they're not your own. And so when you kind of start to realize that you can kind of break it down to be like, okay, why do I think this way? Why do, why, why do I giggle when I hear the word gay? Why, why does my son wanting to wear a dress trigger me so much? Like, you know, why, why are those, why is that the way that it is? And I think when you start to acknowledge, I, you know, cause again, we all came from the same place, yes. like you said, right? Like all of us were taught these things in life but the work is realizing that you were taught that and that it, it, it comes, yeah. there's a reason for it and that it comes from somewhere and that that place is not necessarily, you know, uh, indicative yes. of, of, of the society at large. And so I think realizing that and, and kind of scaling back and being like, okay, I think this way because of this, but maybe that's not the best way to think about it. And maybe I can think about it this way. I think will be, is, a, is an easier way to kind of start to make those conversations a little bit more normal and less, um, uncomfortable especially for people's children yes totally that's really be i mean i appreciate you saying that because it reminds me there's like even a quote 
that I'm like, when you said that, I'm like, did I say that? Like, <laughs> um, but, <laughs> like, wow, that's a, but, but it, it does. I remember, you know, there is, there is like a quote that's often used in 12 step programs where they say that I'm not responsible for my first initial thought, but I am responsible for my reaction. reaction. So, mm -hmm. so that's kind of the, you know, what I'm hearing is kind of the same thing. It's like, be, just by virtue of being on this planet and kind of being a part of the collective societal playground, there are thoughts that I have, and I may, I may not be responsible for that first initial thought, but I am responsible for the action that I take with that thought. Right. Um, and if I could just share too, kind of going back to like when to have conversations with kids and um, if, I could just, if I could just share a little story that kind of recently came up in my own family that I think is a really helpful, um, gives kind of a, a helpful understanding is that so, my nieces and nephews that I write about and I talk about, they're, they're older now. Um, and so all of them have boyfriends or girlfriends. They're all dating someone, um, except for my one niece, my youngest niece. And, and so recently my nephew um, got in trouble because he was texting with a girl inappropriately. And so his parents caught him my, my sister and my, my, my brother-in-law and they confronted him and they said, you know, have you like, did you do this? And, and he denied it, denied it, denied it. And then finally he broke down and just started crying, sobbing and saying that he, he did do it and that he's going to go to hell for it. And, and they, they've never seen him, you know, react that way. And so they, you know, they grabbed him and my, my brother-in-law held him and, and kind of calmed him down. And my mom was sharing this story with me. And I think for me, it's a perfect example of the messages that kids internalize. Cause my, my sister and brother-in-law, they're not super religious. They don't, it's not like they've raised their kids like with hardcore religion. It's not even really part of their upbringing, like upbringing. Um, but those are kind of the generational things that we that we take on just from family systems and just by the messages that we receive of what's appropriate and, and not appropriate. And so I bring this example up because I think that this conversation even goes beyond LGBTQ. And it's so important to help kids to be able to understand that they're developing normally and naturally, just as just as like all human all human beings are and those feelings are so important to not to be able to talk about and and introduce to children mm -hmm. because they're going to feel them and if we don't talk about them right. then they feel that there's something wrong and shameful and they're going to go to hell or they're going to get in trouble and so if we can have these conversations it can prevent those messages from shame from from being internalized and and, and just kind of an extension to that story that I just shared is when my mom told me recently, we we're just talking about because my what my niece and nephew went to the fall, the winter dance or something. And so my mom was telling me about it. And I told her, I'm like, I already knew that because my niece who just turned nine, she's the one who's been telling me about so and so has a girlfriend, so and so has a boyfriend. And so I share that because to me, that's her curiosity as, as, as young as eight years old, as young as, you know, seven years old, she's looking out in the world and ha and internalizing these, these, these messages. And she has curiosity because she's having crushes herself. 
And so when parents think like, oh, kids are too young to know what being gay is or being what being transgender is, they have that that natural curiosity because they're developing themselves. So, so Chris, what is the more appropriate way to go about it to prevent this kind of suppression in children? Like, is there not to get all this? Is there like a standard operating procedure to go about? Yeah, yeah. Here, here's the manual. Here's the instructions. Yeah. Here's the instructions. Yeah, I'll email you, and then you can send them out to your listeners. On this birthday. Or right yeah. Is there is there like right. a? I'm being, yeah. yeah. We're being facetious. Yeah. So there has to be like a. You, you want the you want the good news or the bad news? We'll go bad news first. Okay. Bad news. Bad news. No, there's not. <laughs> <laughs> there's not. There's not. Good news is that we can still do it, and I think the approach is that you know, ultimately, and this is what I hope my message and my book really conveys is that, you know, meet meet each child where they're at. And also create a space for them to be able to, like my, my, my niece, like she feels comfortable to talk to me about crushes, to talk to me about her sister has a boyfriend. They went to a dance, um, like when we FaceTime. And, and, and so that, that's, that's, that's kind of an example of where you kind of just allow kids to kind of feel comfortable and, and to validate, to validate their experience. Like my nephew who felt so much shame, oh my gosh, for feeling like those feelings that just are, are normal. Like to have those conversations with kids and say, you know, your body's going through something and to be able to kind of name that and it's and okay to, be able to give and it's okay. It's totally okay. You're going to have, you're going to have feelings like physical feelings and to be able to tell, help them to understand that. And, and that takes away the shame, you know, because they're going to think that they're the only ones who are experiencing that. And then they're going to do it in secret. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, and they're going to do it in secret. And they're going to do it in secret. And then that's where the shame, that's where the shame, you know, shame only needs secrecy, silence um, and judgment to grow. And that's actually what I was going to kind of like say, Chris, is that, you know, like for for myself also um, personally, like have that. I think that that also ends up um, leading to the, um, you know, the, the sexually acting out and the possible promiscuity that that occurs in young people not just in the lgbtq community like also outside the community you know where, where the sh- that shame and secrecy because again it's a natural way of life that they're going to they're going to experience it and then but but with the shame coupled with that is when the sneaking around and like kind of acting out happens because you know it's it's like it, it, it's it's shame so it's like you know i i can't talk about this so i'm just gonna do it and so then you have then and then the kids forced to kind of figure it out on their own figure and, and source their answers and source their which is probably the worst the, place to be outside which is the worst place to get it from then from you know where it should come totally from. yeah totally totally yes zooming out a little bit i i think just the overall topic of having or broaching difficult conversations with young children has me very conflicted um I mean, I would like to have children one day. I don't have any children yet. And, you know, on, on our show, Sydney, we talk about racism a lot. We talk about homophobia and, and, and very tough mm-hmm. conversations. And, I, and ideally, mm-hmm. in my mind, I see myself being very honest with my child. 
or children. But then at the same time, it's like, you know, I still want my kid to be a kid. And then we still, but then we, we spoke about it in the, the intros that whether you speak about it or not, whether it be racism, whether it be homophobic, they're exposed to messages, whether you have the explicit conversation or not. So, I mean, I'm just having an open conversation with the two. It leaves me very conflicted. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get that. I hear that. I hear that. And I think it's a very, I, I, I totally hear that. And I think it's, it's true for me as well. It's like, you know, I want kids to be able to have a, an, uh, an upbringing where we're not sitting them down and having these conversations. Right. Um, I don't, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it's, I don't think it's that way at all. And I think also like, just for, you know, transparency sake is that we're going to, we're going to say things wrong and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make parents and caregivers, uncles, me, like I'm going to, my, my nieces and nephews probably have internalized a message that maybe from me that I, you know, the, the good news is that just by being willing to kind of be a space, like almost like a, like if you're familiar with attachment, you know, styles, it's like all, all kids need is a sit, a secure base that, that they, that they can come to. And, and that, and that makes the difference in the world as far as attachment. And so that's kind of like, for me, the equivalent of these conversations is like, just to know that a kid has a say, a secure base that they could come to. And it's not me sitting them down every Thursday at six o'clock. And we're going to talk, you know, it's, it, it, it's <laughs> right. kind of just like a evolving kind of way. Like for me, just, I can speak to my own experience is I started having conversations. Like I said, the, I gave the example with my niece and nephew, just kind of just talking to them about their lives at school. Like, Oh, you know, just a, kind of a curiosity that I have and, Oh, you know what? And then I started getting them books for Christmas, um, you know, to kind of keep the conversation going just kind of in a normal kind of way. Like I would get them books in general. So why not get them a book that maybe has a certain subject that they can kind of, my, my one niece loves to read and she loves to read like books that are beyond her kind of like intellect. And so it, it's each kid's going to be like, you're going to have a different approach with them. And I hear from your perspective, as far as like not introducing things that are like super not age, like you want them to be have kids and have fun and not worry about. I want to yeah. do both. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to do it. In, yeah. It sounds good in, in, in theory, but in practice, I can easily see how challenging that may be. Right. That's why going back to kind of what I talked about earlier is that we can only take others as far as we've gone ourselves. It's like parents and caregivers, aunts and uncles, like that, that means that, that, that means us too. And so as far as I'm able to go with my own learning and unlearning, I'm going to be able to create that energetic space for, for the next generation of, of kids. Um, because I'm going to I'm going to just be more kind of attuned to that. And I think it's it's also important to note, right, especially people like like Malik and myself who aren't parents um, yet, but want to have children um, that, you know, we all know there's no perfect way to pay. Like there's no rule book to follow with parenting. There's no perfect way to do any of this. No. Um, and, no. And, and like no. you said, Chris, you know, it's I, I, no. I think what again, what my parents, my mother, um, did a really good job of despite all of the thing you know the, the fact that i was in the classroom for so long and all of that 
you know, she did do a really good job of just creating that space. And like, anytime we had a question, just because again, like you said, kids, they, you know, they have a thought, they ask the question. Um, and even anytime I had a question, because my, my earliest memory of meeting or knowing an LGBTQ person, I grew up with a transgender um, man now, transgender boy uh, at the time on my, in my elementary school. And um, at, at the time, right, it was, it was obvious that, um, you know, this man was quote unquote different, right? It was like, you know, at the time um, I grew up with him when he was Nina and, uh, you know, would be wearing suits and like doing all the things. And like, I, I remember distinctly asking my mother because he was my neighbor, he grew up around the corner from me. I remember asking my mother distinctly, like I came home one day from school and it was after graduation and um, he had come to his older sister's graduation, was in my class wearing a suit. And I came, I went home from my mom and I was like, mom, um, I, I said to her, oh, I said, mom, um, I heard other kids on the playground, like talking about Nina and why she wore a suit to the graduation. Like, do you, why did Nina wear a suit? Right? Like I just, you know, and I, my mother, I remember what she, at the time, like she knew exactly what I was trying to like get at. Right. And we literally at that moment, like had, had a conversation about it. She's like, you know, I don't, she didn't say transgender mm. at the time. Cause I don't think I would have understood what that meant. But she said, you know, mm. Nina, Nina likes to wear suits and you have three brothers who all dress like that, sure. but sometimes some girls wear suits and that's just what she likes to wear. And, you know, people are going to talk about it because it does look different, but there's nothing different about right. it or wrong with it. She just right. likes to enjoy suits. You like to wear dresses and she likes to wear suits. And I, you know, at the time I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. Okay. And, but I just like, even that simple five right. minute like exchange that we had about um, about him at the time yeah. when when he eventually came out as transgender, I, I was like, oh, okay. Like it wasn't, I just remember going back to school and feeling like, oh, okay. Yeah, I totally, I understand. That's cool. That's fine. And I was able to kind of like intentionally, right. Unlearn those things that I was experiencing as at that age and like helping to, to you know, to break that cycle of the phobias, right. Um, that people around me were experiencing or promulgating. And it wasn't even just what your mom said. It seems to me is how she said it. Cause yeah, totally. I mean, we, we yeah. say, we say it colloquially yeah. all the time, but vibes don't lie. And right. I think p kids really are very intuitive, like even oh more intuitive gosh. than adults. Like they just yeah. pick up on everything. Like if, she had, if she had like looked at me, if I had asked her that and she had looked at me like, like even had just done that, right? Like, right. Oh, that's enough. Oh, what did right. I say? That right. would have been enough. Like that's, she didn't even right. That's the message. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. She didn't need, I remember her, yes. I, that's what I remember her doing is literally not flinching or like, it, I yes. would thought I asked her like, where's the grocery store? You know what I mean? Like it was like, right. And that's how she always <laughs> right. was. Yeah. That's how she always was with every yeah. question I ever had about yeah. the LGBTQ community. And so, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it, just in those little subtle things, I think make a huge difference, you know, so. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, that's a great point. Cause I mean, in my experience teaching with kids, like, oh my gosh, their your vibes do not, I mean, they could pick <laughs> yeah. up the energy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, from the, I mean, I could say, I could be up there like talking about something until I'm blue in the face, but if my energy is totally, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to learn from my energy versus right, my before words. what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's so many. I mean, we, we tried to do the best we could in terms of like talking through your, talking through your book without, um, obviously without spoiling it, but there are a couple more points I'd like to hit on. Um, specifically your book speaks to trauma and articulates big T, little T, and then eventually goes mm -hmm. into explaining what intergenerational trauma is. 
And I think that is something that our listeners should hear, not only um, from understanding the the plight of the LGBTQ plus community, but just of all the um, underrepresented groups we kind of try to highlight on the show. So can you give the elevator pitch as to... Yeah, elevator pitch. Yeah. Elevator pitch of trauma. (laughs) No no pressure. No no pressure pressure. at all. Um, Yeah. So um, yeah. uh, So big T, little T trauma. I think that that's a really important distinguishing um, factor to make when it comes to these conversations about trauma. Because I think that when people hear trauma, they like even me saying that right now, like everyone just kind of has a idea of trauma. And I think that especially nowadays, it's used a lot to describe like experiences like, oh, that was traumatic or oh, you know. And so for me, I think it's really important to be able to understand little t trauma and big t trauma. Little t trauma is can be just as damaging because it's constant and pervasive. Whereas big T trauma is usually like looked at as the event, like a thing. But what's really important to understand in the study of trauma is that trauma, the, the trauma wasn't necessarily the thing that happened. It's the afterwards of not being able to tell anyone. That That's where it's experienced as trauma. And so for an LGBTQ person, just to give you an example, like in my own life, um, like a a little T trauma would look like a daily microaggression Mm -hmm. or um, I I call it like kind of, you know, you've heard like death by a thousand paper cuts. It's Mm -hmm. it's kind of like all the instances where I'm at a grocery store, I get into the Uber, I'm at a church function with my friend and someone asks me like, oh, do you have a girlfriend or oh, uh, when are you going to get married and, you know, have kids or do you have, you know, like just have those constant heteronormative messages for me, it's -hmm. exhausting. And I think that I've done enough work in my life where I've gotten to a place where I'm okay kind of like navigating Mm -hmm. those, like kind of like- You have your response ready. (laughs) Being able to kind of ding, ding. Yeah, like my, my, or just also to contain my energy. Like, I feel like if my, if I'm like kind of this vessel, if I allow those little kind of like, you know, just tiny paper cuts, my, my energy is being depleted. And so, but, but growing up as a kid, even into my young adult life, like just the constant microaggressions, like even at a family function, like when my mom said, you know, oh, they're too young to understand, you know, you, you, you know, they don't need to know about you being gay. Like all of that stuff is little t trauma. Mm-hmm. And because it happens over time, what ends up happening is the person feels missed. They feel, they start to kind of almost unseen. And 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 that's, that's the biggest thing with trauma is trauma is a disassociation from the self. It's a, it's a, it's a disconnect from the self. And so over time, those constant microaggressions of not being seen or known it, it's like it, it, it's the traumatic effect of being disconnected from from the the core of who I am. It's powerful. Chris, you're spitting fire. I right know. Now. Drop it. You're dropping. What's that? I see, I see you spit. You you spitting fire right now. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's like that's like the, that's the quick version. Oh yeah, no, no, for sure. No, it was it was very helpful. So, can you expand and and speak through how that trauma can be passed intergenerationally? Yeah. Yeah. So trauma 
intergenerationally is is and I and I think that this is really important as far as like the LGBTQ community is because communities can pass down trauma. And so it's not just like blood family members like my family, you know, passing down. And so the way that I started to kind of learn about this myself was just by virtue of working at a really popular gay bar that I mean, it's, it's kind of a well-known place and kind of just experiencing over time, like my regulars that came in talking about their their experience of living through the AIDS epidemic and, and, and just the trauma that they carried in their stories and, and not being able to tell those stories, they carry them in their bodies. And, and then just by virtue of being part of the community and being in community spaces, we're just kind of passing that trauma down to the next generation. Um, and, and that's why I think it's really important to look at intergenerational trauma as it relates to the LGBTQ community. Um, because we're, we're now at a time where, you know, more young kids are, are learning about being LGBTQ. They're coming out earlier, um, but where are the stories? And so it's important that we are able to tell the stories because then if we don't tell the stories, then that's where the trauma is passed down. Is it like having less role models? I, I was I recently had a conversation with a transgender man and he expressed or, or kind of articulated how he has no reference points in terms of how to be a transgender man. Like he has no one to look up to. He has no one. I mean, I guess there's a little bit more people now in pop culture, but... Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine like not having any role model. Like if you are not a part of an underrepresented group, you you likely have people in your network that you can refer to if, if you're going through a life experience or just anything. Right. Just casual conversation. And he he literally explained that he had he had yeah. nowhere. He had no yeah. point of reference. So is that yeah. kind of what you're articulating? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think it's so important for young people to be able to see themselves in someone else and and so to be able to do that in a way where there's a positive role model to kind of see like what the possibilities are and i think for a lot of lgbtq people um i you know i, I recently there was an article that was written that you go it talked about how you go from the closet to the gay bar or you go from the closet to to like not just a gay bar, but to like a, a place where there's, you know, substances. And, and so to be able to kind of have like a, almost like a, a, a developmental phase where you get to see yourself in someone else and have that mentorship experience, I think is so important. Um, Cause it's, I think it's part of being able to see yourself reflected back to you. Right. And, and before we have one more question before we, we end out, but um, before we get to that, your book speaks to barriers to development. Uh, what does that mean in the context of trauma? And I think that kind of cuts through a lot of the of what we discussed today. Yeah, so barriers to development, I mean, a big one kind of bringing up full circle would be heteronormativity. And so if you have a child who is, there are developmental stages that, that every child goes through. And so there are barriers to development if a child is trans, non-binary, lesbian, gay, just by virtue of being in a society that is kind of the, going back to the little T is like the microaggressions or the missing them. 
And so those would be examples of barriers to development. And so what ends up happening is then when a person comes out, then those developmental experiences that they didn't receive when they were younger, oftentimes are taken into them like when they're, when they're older. Um, and so the barriers to development are the things that prevent us from being able to develop naturally the way, the way that we are, for, for, for who we are. And I think that in addition to heteronormativity, you had asked um, what, the, uh, what the definition of uh, anomie. Mm-hmm. And so that would be, that, that's kind of a, a one that people often don't like. It's like, what is that? Um, and it's, it's a sense of purpose. That was me. It's, it's feeling when I read, okay, I was like, yeah. what is this? <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a, it, that would be an example of a sense of a uh, barrier to development. Cause it's a sense of, it's a sense of being worthy and feeling purposeful for who you are. And so if a child is going back to kind of your mentorship, if they're not seeing themselves and they're not, ha- then there's the, there's a, uh, there's something missing. Right. And there's this kind of, like, because I think most of us kind of, you know, when we go through life, we we want to feel like who we are ma- matters. Of course. And and so and so when we get to, you know, not when we get to experience that, then there's a sense of feeling on purpose of feeling worthy and deserving. And just really quickly, what's that? I just learned a new term today. Oh, uh, <laughs> I said I just learned a new term today yeah. to describe my life. Yeah, and I think just to and <laughs> or you know. To, to kind of share with your listeners too, is that just as much as we can pass down trauma intergenerationally, we can pass down our resilience. Mm. And so I think that that's a really helpful way to kind of like understand that that's the purpose of this conversation is so that we can pass down our resilience and and, and help. Yeah, yes, for exactly. sure. And break that trauma, hopefully. And Chris, we learned so much from you today. Like this so was- much. Wow. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate being here and being able to have this conversation. I, and I appreciate your questions. It was really an insightful read and, and, and the TEDx talk as well. It was, it was nice to read something that meets people where they are, but still had integrity in terms of having the tough conversations. Like you really struck that balance between yeah, like that was the balance you really struck. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I think that's a hard line to tell. I think we try to tell that line all the time on our show between mm-hmm. like being you know, like this is what it is the harsh realities but at the same time you know people people don't want to feel attacked or people don't want to feel villainized and i think you you really do a good job of you know explaining yeah. in, in a very i hate using the word digestible but it was it was in a digestible manner you know it was it was it was really refreshing really refreshing to like it really stripped back i feel like um you know, yeah, very stripped back, stripped, stripped down and pulled back, yeah. like, wow, well, thank synopsis you. Of, of a complicated issue. But, like, I really do think you wow. do an amazing job of making it very relatable and, and very understandable. And it's, it is, it's refreshing. Like, I feel like people, like Lisa, don't feel like they're being pointed at, but kind of feel mm. like they're, like, it, the light bulb went off. Like, that kind of, you know, reaction. Like, that makes people feel like they learned something. Like, oh, okay, yeah, oh, I get it. And it's a little more positive than, like, oh. Feel like shit mm. yeah you know <laughs> yeah really refreshing yeah well thank you so much that yeah i appreciate that that's a huge compliment um just because you're i mean you know these conversations are tough and i think the moment we point any sort of finger it's like the the walls kind of, of just course. go up and so i i i really appreciate that because it is it's con- it's complex mm-hmm. and it's nuanced um 
Yeah, so thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to the show. Discriminology is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios, executive produced by George Andriopoulos. Our theme song, Wild Ones, is licensed through Twano Beats LLC. Other music and sound effects licensed through Epidemic Sound. Discriminology is hosted with Podbean. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow us at discriminology underscore podcast on Instagram, at discriminology3 on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure to follow all the great podcasts produced by Launchpad 516 Studios.